Well, good morning, Providence family. Uh, grateful to have you here today. And if it's your first time with us, uh, welcome. Uh, it's been a sweet time for us as a church. We've been walking through one of the 66 books that make this Bible, um, the book of Ephesians. And so if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be today. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, there should be one. I know there's one out in the hallway or there might be some in the chairs in front of you. And if you have one of those ESV Bibles, you can open up to page 976. 976 is where we're going to be today looking at Ephesians. And if you haven't been here, if you've just forgotten what's happened over the last couple of weeks, we've been in Ephesians chapter one. Today, we're going to finish it. So four weeks, we're going to get through Ephesians chapter one. But the reason why is because it's so rich full of just different truths that we need to know about those who are in Christ. So what I love about the book of Ephesians is the first three chapters are all about just facts and truths that we need to know, okay? These things that we need to know about who God is and who we are. And then the last three chapters, just six in the book of Ephesians, the last three chapters are all about what do we do with that, right? And the reason why I love that is because that's what the Christian life is. It's not first about what we can do, but it's rather what God has done for us. And now we live in light of what God has done for us. And so it's a beautiful section. And just looking back over the last 14 verses before we dive into verse 15, Paul has just told us, told the church there and church today, that uh, we are faithful in Christ. This is our identity um, as Christians. We are blessed in Christ. Verse four, it says we're chosen in Christ. Verse five, we're adopted as sons. It says, verse seven, we are redeemed and forgiven. We also have an inheritance in verse 14. All of these different things that keeps telling us over and over again, this is who we are in Christ. And Paul is praising God for what he has done for us. And then there's a shift in verse 15, which is a great shift. After we praise God, what do we do? We should pray. And that's what Paul does. He prays a prayer that I've prayed for you guys this week. Um, pray for this church, but Paul opens up in in verse 15, and this is what the word of God says. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes and says, for this reason, what reason? All the truths he's just said of who we are in Christ. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope that he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is his immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might? that worked in Christ when he raised them from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, in all. Let's pray. Take a moment right now, no matter where you are in your spiritual walk, just take a moment to ask God silently 
to speak to you today. Take a moment just to pray that God would speak his word clearly through me this morning. Father God, we, we gather because we need you. Lord, we need you to enlighten our hearts so that we could see and know you. God, I pray that today that we would know you um, in a personal way, more than just uh, letters on a page. God, but we would know you um, in our lives, in our relationships. God, help us to, um, to know the hope that we have in you. God, that we would know that we are valuable to you. And Lord, may we grasp all of this in, in light of your immeasurable greatness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a man I want you to know two things about. Uh, it's a true story. There's a man named Tim Gray. I uh, lived in Wyoming. And the two things you need to know about Tim Gray is, first, um, he was due an inheritance of $19 million dollars. Doing an inheritance of $19 million. He was a, a, distant, rel- a, a distant relative of get Clark, whose estate was worth $300 million. So that's the first thing you need to know about him. The second is this. Tim was a homeless man who lived underneath a bridge. Now, what's so amazing about that is we're like, well, if he's a homeless guy, and yet there's an inheritance that was due to him of $19 million dollars, why did he live like that? Like, why did he live as a, as a homeless man? It's because he didn't know. He didn't know about his inheritance that he had. And tragically, before they could get the news to him, before he could find out that he was a millionaire, he passed away of hypothermia in the middle of the night, living underneath the bridge. Now, why I say that is because Paul has just laid out a list of things that we have in Christ, and he's like, praying now for you and for these people that they would know these facts, that they would know these things. He doesn't want them to to live their whole lives and die and not know of the true riches and the true greatness that they have in Christ Jesus. And if we could rewind time, we would run to Tim and tell him, you are rich in Christ. You are rich, not just in the financial sense, but you are rich in Christ if you would believe and trust in him. And that's what Paul wants us to see today as well. His prayer, of all the things that Paul could have prayed for, his prayer is first he gives thanks to God for them. And then in verse 17, he prays this, that may God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Paul is praying that they would know. And this is crazy. Of all the things that Paul could have prayed for, right? Of all the things, he prays that they would know God. There's there's a sense of that, of like the audacity of Paul to pray that, right? I mean, there's people in this time that I'm sure are struggling financially, that are struggling with health issues, that are struggling with relationship issues. So why would Paul, of all things he could pray for, Stop here and say, I pray that they would know God. They would know these things about God. And I truly believe, I truly believe that's because as we know God, it speaks into every single one of these areas in our lives. 
when we feel unloved, we know in Christ we are loved. When we feel like we're not accepted, we can look back and know that we have been adopted into Christ's family. We have been chosen. When we feel like we have no financial security, we can look to the one who holds all treasure in his hand and have faith and trust in him. This is the God which he prays that we would know. Now, in in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, the language, there are two different words for know. One of the words was just a head knowledge, a knowledge of facts. Oida was the word in in the Greek. Oida, I know these facts. So this would be things like, I know that as a Yankees fan, the New York Yankees have won 27 championships. Like, I, I know that's a fact. It's data. I know that uh, Raleigh is the capital of North Carolina, and I know that New Bern used to be the capital of North Carolina. I know, thanks to Shark Week, that uh, bull sharks have the most testosterone of any creature on earth. Like, I know these. These are facts. These are data points, right? But that's not the word that Paul uses here. He doesn't use oida just to know facts about God. He uses gnosko, which this is a word to know with experience. It's important that we would know this with experience. We wouldn't just know facts about God, know truths about God, but instead we would internalize them. We'd meditate on them. We would know them as true. And this word that he uses here for gnosko, the way I describe it is like this. I can know a lot about a parachute, right? I can take a class and study how to skydive. I can know how a parachute opens and how you fold it back up and put it in the pack. That's oida, knowledge, But gnosko is when I suit up, I get in the airplane, we go and we take off, and then I jump out of the plane and pull the strap, right? That's when I'm gnoscoing the parachute. Like I'm experiencing it, hopefully holding me up, which by the way, I would never do. You guys are crazy that would do that. But that's what he's talking about here. He wants us to gnosko God. He wants us to experience God in real personal ways. Now, Paul gets real specific in what he wants us to know about God, which I'm thankful for. He says this in verse 18. Look back there with me. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, what does he want us to know? What is the hope to which he has called you? The first thing Paul wants us to know is the hope that we have from God. Now, when we think about hope in our culture today, it's not with assurance, It's really with a, maybe a longing. Like, I hope the Yankees win tonight, but they're probably gonna lose the series. But I hope, right? I hope in this. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. It talks about the hope with with assurance that there's a firm foundation that it's going to happen. Maybe not right now, but we know for a fact it's going to happen. So when Paul says he wants us to know the hope, he's saying, I want you to know with assurance what you have from God, the hope you have from God. Our hope is in what Christ has done. We look back, but we also look forward. Our hope is in what Christ will do. Now, I don't want us to rush past this, church, because hope is so important for us today. We live in a culture that is starving for true hope, for lasting hope. They're looking for it everywhere and they can't find it. But we see glimpses of this hunger for hope everywhere. I was talking to one of my neighbors in our cul-de-sac this last week. And some of y'all have heard what's going on in the NFL with 
um, players um, not coming out for the national anthem, um, so staying in the locker room or kneeling and not standing. And uh, one of my neighbors, the one I'm talking to, is a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And so I just asked him, I was like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? And he was really upset about it, and he talks to me about it for a little while and kind of vents. And then finally he, he looks at me and he's like, hey, what are your thoughts on it? And to be honest, I didn't really have thoughts in the moment. I was like, I don't, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, and I said, well, I'm a why person. I like to ask why. And so when I saw them do that, my question was, why are they doing that? And as I saw interviews and I read articles, they kept saying the same thing. They said, we're doing this because of all the injustices that we see in our nation. All the injustices. So I, I looked at my friend and I said, man, I agree with them that there's a lot of injustices in our nation but it's, um, it's bigger than a nation problem. It's bigger than an American problem. There's, there's injustices all around our world. And I said, I think what we're longing for is somebody to fix these injustices, but I don't think it's our government that can fix all these things. <laughs> I said, my hope is that Christ will fix all of these things. And it's hope with assurance, right? That Christ is gonna come fix. It doesn't matter who our president is or what our government is. Christ one day is going to come and he's going to fix all of these injustices and all of this brokenness in the world. And this was his response in this conversation. He looked back at me and he said, so what you believe is that, that Jesus is actually like king over all of this stuff. And I said, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I believe. That's the hope that I have in Christ. And that's a beautiful picture. That's what we need to take to a, to a world that's longing for hope. And what's so unique about this is this is something that Christianity and only Christianity has to offer. I mean, you look at every other world religion and you look at every other philosophy and we're the only one that provides assurance and hope that's, that's solid. I mean, think about it. Muhammad in the Quran wrote, this is Muhammad, the founder of Islam. He wrote, speaking of eternal security, he said, what Allah will do with me, I don't know. I mean, the founder did not know what was gonna happen with his future. He didn't. Buddhism teaches, well, if I can just be a good enough person, I'll, I'll relive this life a few times through incarnation and then reincarnation. And then one day I'll reach nirvana where I'll just cease to exist. I'm like, that doesn't sound hopeful at all. Like I'm pretty young right now, but this life is hard. So why would I wanna live it over and over and over again to hopefully get to the point where I cease to exist? And then you can even take it out of the religious world into just philosophies of, of humanism where this is not bad. We wanna do good things. We wanna care for one another. This is what it teaches as humans. We wanna love humans well. We wanna be good moral people. So that's not bad. But the problem with that is that gives no hope in death. It gives no hope in death. I mean, you could be a great person your whole life and then when you die, you're thinking, well, what, what now? If this is life is all there is, then, then it's hopelessness. But if you look at Christianity, this is why Paul, I think, says we want you to know this hope. If you look at Christianity, it gives hope in all these areas. We have assurance of our eternal salvation because it's not found in us. It's found in Christ. It's, it's gripped in his, his hand. We have hopes through the difficulties of this life because we know that Christ is going to fix them and make all things right. We have hope in death because Christ rose from the dead, showing that we have victory even in the worst defeat. Another place in the Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says it like this, speaking of our hope. Verse 15, it says, but let your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Listen to this. Always being ready 
and prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for what? Your hope that is in you. Yet do it in gentleness and respect. This verse assumes that as believers, people would ask us about the hope that we have. Because he says, hey, be ready. When people see the hope and see how you view things different, and they ask you, why do you hope like that? That you would have a response to give them. Now, my question and my application to this point of, okay, knowing and experiencing God's hope is this. Are we hoping loud enough? Are we as Christians hoping loud enough? Do we look any different from everybody else around us? There should be a difference. We should have this certainty of hope that we have in Christ and knowing it and experiencing it. All of this is great and it's found solidified in Christ. So if you don't have that hope, how do you get that hope? It's not found in your good works. It's found in what Christ has done for you through his death and his resurrection on the cross. So we have hope in Christ. We look to him and we pray just like Paul prayed right here. God, enlighten our hearts that we would believe. I honestly believe there's probably people in this room that wanna believe in God, but there's just a hardness of your heart. There's just something you can't see. You wanna believe, there's a hardness there. Pray like Paul prayed right here. God, enlighten my heart that I would see and I would believe in your goodness and your greatness. Give me this hope that we find here in the scriptures. And Paul could have stopped with hope, but he didn't. Look at the second half of verse 18. He also wants them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, we read that and we think, what is this religious mumbo jumbo? Like, what is he saying right here, right? And you would think in context that he would be saying the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. But what does he say there? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is God's inheritance that we're talking about right here. What he wants us to know, what this passage is saying is he wants you to know, he wants me to know our worth to God. We need to know our worth to God. I mean, think about it. Have you ever tried to buy something for somebody who has everything? Like a really rich, wealthy person? Like you're thinking, well, if they needed something, they would just go buy it themselves anyway. So what can I even get for this person that has everything, right? And it's the same here. It's like, okay, God, what can we bring to you? You already have everything. I love how one pastor said it. And he said it like this. The one thing that God didn't have and he was willing to go to a bloody cross on Calvary to obtain was you. Was you. Don't miss this. God who spoke everything into existence could have just wiped the creation board clean and started over, right? He could have just been like, nope, y'all messed up, sin, uh, we're done and wiped it completely clean. But he didn't. He came to rescue and to save you. Now, why this is such a big deal is creation cost God nothing, but to save you and to save me cost him his very life. This is almost too glorious to understand. I mean, we are considered worthy in God's eyes. He deeply loves us. He walked through some of the greatest shame and humiliation and pain that the world has ever seen 
in order to save you because he loves you deeply. Some of you may have seen this movie Taken, and I'm kind of surprised that they made three of them because if you get Taken once, I understand, twice, okay, three times, you probably just need to stay at home for the rest of your life. But they made three movies, and and the first one, um, Liam Neeson's in it, and he's the father. And his daughter goes on a trip to Europe, and she gets kidnapped and sold into human trafficking. And it's a, it's a sad, sad picture, but that's what happened. And um, her father goes to rescue her and saves her. Um, he's a, a Green Beret, and he uh, has a particular set of skills that he's going to go and rescue his daughter. And so what he does is he goes over there, and he goes to some of the darkest, damp, worst places you can imagine in order to rescue his daughter. He rescues her and he brings her home. Now, can you imagine, this isn't in the movie, but can you imagine like two, three years down the road, we see his daughter and she's just crying and her head's low. And we're like, hey, what's wrong? And she's like, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares for me. We're like, are you kidding me? You don't remember what your dad did? He basically went over to Europe and lit it on fire to save you. Like he went to extremes to save you. How can you feel like you don't matter and you're not worthy and you're not valuable? But that's what we do to God all the time. We think nobody loves me and I'm not worthy to be accepted by anybody. And God, the father who sent his son to die on the cross will look at you and say, you're loved. You're loved. If you ever have any doubt, look to the cross. Look to Christ. He loves you and he loves you deeply. Believe and trust in that. Believe and trust and know that when God looks at you, he sees a precious jewel. When he looks at us, he sees absolute beauty. And when he looks at you, he sees something absolutely exquisite because of what Christ has done and the fact that you are in Christ. You're loved. Now, what I would say we do with this, how do we apply this truth, not just to know more facts, but experience it, is we have to live knowing we are loved. We have to live differently. Patrick Carnes, who is one of the leading voices in our country today on addiction, has written a number of books. I was wrestling through this question on why people are addicted to drugs and sex and pornography, greed. Why are they addicted to these different things? And his answer, the root of it, really surprised me when I read it. But the root of it for him was that He said, people are addicted to these things. They grasp at things that ultimately destroy us because they feel unloved or unlovely. They feel unloved or unlovely. Maybe you're not addicted to these different things, but you're trying to to grasp at your job or your marital status or your bank account to find worth and security. And you're not gonna find it there. It's found in Christ who never moves, who's never changing. That's where we find our hope and our rest. So we can say things when we know this truth and we've experienced this truth. We can say, even if I don't get this, I have more than I could ever imagine. Even if I don't have this, even if I'm not accepted by that person, not loved by that person, I'm loved in Christ. I'm loved by the one that literally spoke all things into existence. I'm already cared for. I'm already loved by God. 
The last thing Paul wants us to see in this text is that we would know the power of God. We would know the power of God. Look at verse 19. He says, this is the same sentence, but that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. How do you measure God's power, right? Do you do it in, in ounces? Do you do it in pounds? Do you do it in liters? I mean, how, do you, how do you measure God's greatness? I mean, there's not enough words in all of the languages to exhaust God's greatness. And that's why he says here, it's immeasurable. You, you can't measure. There's not a beaker that's big enough to, to measure the greatness of God. It would overflow all of those things. It exhausts every language. But Paul tries to scratch the surface just a little bit on what God's greatness looks like, how we can know God's greatness. And the first thing he starts with is Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 20. This great power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, this is interesting. Like, why in the world would Paul choose the resurrection to, to be the first step to talk about God's greatness? Like, why, why not creation, right? I mean, there's a lot of amazing, powerful things you could point out in creation, right? Like, certain trees that are really strong. You could look at the weather and say, look at these storms that are so vast and so powerful. You could point to those. You could point to the night sky and look at all the stars, the trillions of stars out there and say, you know, look at all of the stuff that God's done and, and pointed to those powers. Like, I mean, it's amazing. If you look at the, just the stars alone, the, one of the stars in our Milky Way system is five million times brighter than our sun. It would be more than a trillion megaton bomb that all of these stars are putting out every second. Paul could have pointed to that and said, look at the great power and might of God. But he doesn't. He starts here with the resurrection. Now, I think the reason why Paul starts here is because we are knee deep. We're actually in over our heads in death. Like everything around us is decaying and dissolving and breaking. And Paul looks at that death and he speaks into it. I mean, think about it. Everything that we hate from diseases to when the storms come, they're, they're, the ultimate end of those things is death. And Paul speaks to the very thing that's final for all of us, the, the darkest of things. He speaks to that and he says, yes, God has greatness and power over that. The very worst thing that you can think of, God has power over that. Now, why that matters to you guys and why that matters to me is because that gives us amazing hope. And this is why if God can look at the worst thing in the world at death and he can redeem it and fix it, then no matter what's going on in your life, he can redeem and fix that. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed or how dark of a place you feel like you're in right now, there is hope for you and there's hope in the greatness of God. And so he starts, he's like, imagine the worst thing possible. God came down into that and he has power over that and he strengthens us through that. This is the truth that we need to experience. The worst of things he can heal and fix. He can wipe away our sin and make us clean. This is the God in whom we serve. And as we look at the resurrection and we see the greatness of God, what this does is it declares that God lives forever 
And if we believe in him, we too shall live forever. But he also says about the greatness of God that he, Jesus, is far above. This is verse 21. He's far above every rule and authority and power and dominion. He moves from the resurrection, which declaims, which proclaims that God will live forever. And then he says, now look at the exaltation. God reigns forever. He lives forever and he reigns forever. This is the greatness of our God. I mean, he reigns forever. There's no position that's greater than Jesus Christ. From from governments to galaxies, God is over all of those things. That is the God in whom we praise, the one that we just sang to. That is the one that we worship. And what's amazing is you see all the different pictures as people come before Christ who is claimed to be seated in this passage. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Everywhere else in scripture, you see angels coming before God and they stand in attention or they fall on their faces before him. And yet Christ is seated because he is over all of these things. Time is not over him. He says he's above um, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Time does not contain our God. He is greater than that. The grave cannot contain our God. He is greater than that. He's far above all of these things. And then the last thing he mentions here that we would kind of scratch our heads over that shows the greatness of God is his church. Look at verse 22 again. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave to him head over all things to the church. As he's measuring the greatness of God, trying to, like I said, it's just a, a scratch of the surface. He says, look at the church. Now, why in the world would he point to the church here, right? Because we think, honestly, in the world and culture we live in, the church is kind of peripheral. We've got to live our lives and we've got a, a, a government and a culture that's, that's much more important and eats a lot of our time. And yet here he says, hey, look at the church. And I think the reason why is because it's amazing that the church is still in existence, Think about it. The devil has been warring against the church since it was founded. There would be people that hate the church, would love to see our doors closed and never open up again. I've talked to people who claim to be Christians that say, hey, I love Christ, but I don't love his church. I want nothing to do with that. And you hear all those things and like, how in the world does the church keep going then? Like how's the church surviving when basically everything is against it? And it's because Christ is over it. It is his body. He's the one that sustains it and strengthens it through generation to generation to generation. And every Fortune 500 company is going to end one day. It's gonna gonna end. But the church will echo through all of eternity. It will never end because Christ is the great one who is sustaining the church. So it wasn't too long ago. I guess it was about a year ago now. My wife and I, my daughter, we went to the zoo um, Ashboro Zoo, which I don't know if this is true or not. I was driving down the road and they had a billboard that said world's largest zoo. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they claim. So we go there and since it's the world's largest zoo, there's tons of animals that we can see. And we see polar bears and lions and alligators and all this different stuff. Well, we get towards the end of our time and I walk up on um, this cage and there's a bird inside this cage. And this is what I see in this cage. Um, I see this bird, yeah, right there. 
And I'm like, man, that's, that's incredible. And then I look down at the little title for it and it says Peregrine Falcon. Now I know a little bit about this bird. And so when I read the title and I see it, my jaw just drops. I'm just like, that's, that's Peregrine Falcon right there. And my wife comes up beside me with my daughter and she's like, what? I said, it's, babe, honey, that, that's, that's a Peregrine Falcon. She's like, it looks like a bird on a branch to me. I don't know. And she kind of shrugs her shoulders and starts to walk away. I'm like, no, babe, you don't understand. That bird can fly 240 miles an hour. And she's like, okay. And she just goes, it walks on. And so I'm standing there and I thought in that moment, I'm like, this cage does not do justice to that bird. That cage does not do justice to the greatness of that bird. It can fly 400 or 240 miles an hour. And I think in the same way that we speak of the greatness of God, but then we try to cage him in our lives and put him in a compartment of our lives and it does not do justice to the greatness of our king. It just doesn't. We say things like, I know that, that I will be resurrected one day and Christ is over death, but yet when we go through some of the darkest moments of health issues, we go into the deepest, darkest depressions of our lives. So we know one thing, but our lives proclaim something different where we can say, okay, God, I know the facts that you created all things by speaking a word and all things were made. And yet we worry, God, I know you can create everything with one word, but can you open up a door for a job for me? I don't know. I don't know if I can trust God in that. And all those different things, what we're doing is we're, we're making God seem small when he is much, much greater than that. He could be trusted for our eternal salvation and our momentary needs. All of that is found in Christ because of his immeasurable greatness that we find in God. Now, his greatness doesn't mean that we're not gonna walk through hard and difficult times because we absolutely will. What it means is we don't have to walk through these times alone, that we have strength that walks with us during these times. So when our economy fails, we have hope, not in our bank accounts, not in our jobs, but in our savior, in our God. We must know the greatness of God because the reality is this, his power is never stagnant. It's never out of commission. It's always actively working in your life and in my life. We must believe and know this truth in a personal way. This has been several years ago now, but my wife's uh, grand, grandfather passed away and they live out in Tennessee, really beautiful area. Um, a lot of farmland out there at the, the bottom of the mountains in uh, the Appalachian Mountains. So it's a really beautiful area. We go out there for the funeral and uh, as we go to the graveside and the casket's being lowered into the ground, the pastor says, if you know this Psalm, and when he says Psalm 23, would you repeat it with me? And we're standing around and I don't know, 20 or 30 people around us. And it's amazing because I'm looking at people in this circle and as they repeat Psalm 23, I mean, they are saying it verbatim. They're saying every word of this Psalm. And I look at that, I'm like, they know the Psalm but they don't know the shepherd. They, they know these facts from the Bible, but they don't know him in a real and personal way. And Paul's fear when he writes this, and my fear is that we would know these facts about God, but we would not really know him. We would know the Psalms, but we wouldn't know the shepherd. We would know God's word, but not the one who wrote God's word. 
We have to know these things in a real and personal way to the glory of God's great name because through it we find hope, we find worth, and we find power. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we can know these truths, but that they're, they're much deeper than words on a page. God, that these words are meant to be lived out. These words are relevant. God, that you aren't distant or foreign from us, but God, you are near to us and our deepest needs. God, I ask that this week you would give us a hope, that, that hope so loudly that people would ask us about it. And God, I pray for those in here right now that don't have hope, Lord, that they would look to you today and find hope in you. God, you are great and you are good. And we thank you for these truths. It's in Christ's great and holy name we pray.